I just want to start off by asking, how do you feel about the skeletons in your closet? I didn't say, do you have skeletons in your closet, because I already know the answer to that question. You've got skeletons in your closet, I've got skeletons in my closet. It's part of, it's just part of what is normal in human life. And here's, here's what I mean by a skeleton in the closet. A skeleton in the closet is something scary, it's, it intimidates us, and something unattractive that we keep hidden in the dark. Why do we keep it hidden in the dark? Well, because it's scary and unattractive. Something about us that, it, that when we think about it, when we get our thoughts wrapped around it, we get anxious. We feel it, right? And then on top of that, we feel like if other people were to see this, it would be ugly to them and, and, you know, it's ugly to me. How do you feel about the skeletons in your closet? And what do you do about it? Well, I'll tell you how I feel about skeletons in my closet. I don't like them. I don't like skeletons in my closet. I don't like skeletons in anybody else's closet. I don't know if you, if you can relate to this, but I, I feel bad sometimes when I feel like I've, I, I, you know, I, I, especially when it comes to a public figure or a pastor or somebody that I, that I know and I respect, and I feel like I kind of know this person, and all of a sudden something hits the fan, and I think, whoa, there's something that was going on underneath that I didn't know anything about this. I don't... I don't like that. It doesn't mean that I all of a sudden don't like that person or that pastor or that public figure. I just don't, I don't like that skeleton that was in the closet. And I think as a culture, we've experienced this, right? I mean, can anybody say Tiger Woods? Right? Here's a guy who looks squeaky clean on the outside. Kid golfers all over the country, they just want to grow up and be Tiger. And then all of a sudden, bam, it hits us in the face and there's a collective frown across the United States of America, or Martha Stewart, or Josh Duggar. That one was a big one. Here's the other thing, talking about how do we feel about skeletons in the closet. I think we're against the whole idea. We, don't, we think it's wrong. We tell our kids, don't hide things. You know, if you make a mistake, come tell me. If you got a problem, come tell me, Right? We tell our employees, we have an open door policy, you know, I've worked at tons of, uh, you know, in, 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 my, in my lifetime I've worked at a lot of different companies and you hear the same thing at every company you work at. We have an open door policy, if something is wrong, if, even if you do something wrong at this company, come tell management, come tell leadership, we'll work through it. Why? Because as a culture, we think it's wrong to have skeletons in the closet. So here's what I want to lead off with this morning. If that's true, if we don't like skeletons in the closet, and if we think it's wrong, then why is hiding our default position? I mean, it is. Lifespan psychologists tell us that it takes a child four years. The age of four, usually, is about the age when a kid learns to lie to cover up their wrongdoing or make a, cover up their mistakes, right? You ask a three-year-old, you know, what, you know, who took the cookies? I did, right? Because they haven't gotten to the lie stage yet, right? They'll get there, give them enough time, right? But here's what we also know from lifespan psychology. They will hide from the beginning. Even before they learn to lie, they know to hide. Why is hiding our default position? Well, I think in order to understand that, we need to go back to the very beginning of Scripture 
In Genesis chapter 3, and remember in this chapter, God has put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, in a perfect situation, and he's given them a ton of latitude, a ton of freedom, a ton of autonomy, and he says, here's one thing that you can't do, here's one boundary, because a healthy life always involves boundaries. Here's a boundary, here's a rule, here's a thing that you need to make sure that you don't do, don't eat from the tree of the fruit, uh, or don't eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. He said everything else is... is um, you know, you have a, you're allowed to, to eat of that, but not this one, right? You know the story. The Bible says in verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, uh, too, and he ate it. And at that moment, now I want you to look at how immediate all of this is. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame. Very important. We're coming back here at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. That's also important. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about uh, in the garden, so they hid our first parents. No socialization. They haven't learned from a collective society what to do when things go wrong. They do this instinctively. God shows up. They've made a mistake. They feel shame. What do they do? They hide. They hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I want to just ask that question. Some of you in this room, when you heard Andrew's testimony, there, there are a few, and, and maybe specifically there are some guys maybe in this room, you heard Andrew's testimony and you were breaking out into a sweat. Because when God comes looking for us and he says, where are you? We get that our efforts to hide are only so effective. And the truth is, we don't like the skeletons that are in our closet. Why do we hide? Here's the thing. There are three reasonable thoughts that we think that make us want to hide. And they're right there in the story that I just read to you, right? Here's the first thought that we think. This is, one, this is the most, one of the most powerful thoughts that can motivate us to do negative things. But when we think this thought, and it's reasonable sometimes for us to think this because of our experience and because of what, what we've been through in life and maybe some of the relationships that we've struggled with. But when we think this thought, it motivates us to hide. And that's the thought that I'm never going to be good enough. I've made a mistake. Now I'm not going to be good enough for anybody. Right? That is the, the description of shame. Right? In Genesis 3-7, the Bible says at that moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame. What is shame? Now, guilt is different than shame. Guilt is the feeling that I've done something wrong and now I'm going to have to pay for it. Shame is the feeling that I'm, I'm going to have to own the fact that I'm never going to be good enough for anybody. Some of you have been in relationships with a critical person. You know what criticism is? Criticism is when somebody labels you as being defective. It's not like you did something and that bothered me. You know, and this is something that I deal with in my marriage coaching all the time because people will, will hurl insults, insults at each other, but they won't be talking about specific things that went wrong or things that that person did they wish they hadn't done. You know what they'll say? They'll say, you're a jerk, you're a drama queen, you're an idiot, you always do this, you never do that, and they put a name tag on the other person's soul and they say, you are this way. You experience that enough, eventually you come to believe you'll never be good enough for anybody. It's just how you are. You know, she said, I'm a jerk. I guess I'm a jerk. He said, I'm an idiot. I guess I'm an idiot. I'll never be good enough. But it's that thing that we feel when we look at that skeleton in the closet 
And no longer is it about somebody is criticizing us. It is about us criticizing us. It is about us saying, look how defective I am. And whenever I go to that closet and I look at that skeleton that's in the closet, it tells me I am defective as a person and I feel shame and I'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough for my husband, for my kids, for my wife, for God. And so we hide. Here's the second thought, second destructive thought that makes us hide. And that's the thought that I can manage this, right? We think, you know, yes, this is bad, but I have two options. I can either come, I can either come clean with this and I can think about how bad would that be or maybe I can manage it, which wouldn't be good, but it wouldn't be as bad as coming clean. So we try to sweep up after our mistakes. We try to clean up. We, we, we try to, to make it look less bad as, as people are around us. And, and as much as we can put it under wraps, we put it under wraps. And here's the problem with saying I can manage this. If you're able to successfully hide it once, the biggest hook that Satan ever has that he can put into anybody is the, the ability to successfully hide your skeleton in the closet. Because if you can hide it once... Satan hooks us with this thought that, well, I guess if I can hide it, I can keep doing it, right? If I can keep it under wraps, then I guess I can keep going in this direction. Well, damage control experts, PR experts, people that deal with public figures when things come out that are really negative, they say you have two options, just two things you can do. That, and, and if you think about how public figures have dealt with these sorts of things, it all fits into one of these two categories. One is to hide it, like we just said, try to keep it under wraps, but the other one is to spin it. Because how many of us know you can try to contain the truth, right? You can hide stuff as much as you, you can try to contain the truth, but the truth leaks, Right? As much as you want to try to hide something, little bits of the truth will seep out and then people will start asking questions. You know? Because things won't be consistent. They won't fit together. Your spouse will start asking questions because something won't add up. Or, or somebody else in your family will ask questions because something doesn't add up. Or somebody will see something and mention something. Or so, something just won't seem quite right to your boss and they'll ask something. right? And, and, and all of a sudden you feel that sense that your body has geared up and your heart rate goes up and your blood pressure goes up. And your stomach launches itself up into your throat and you think, I don't know what to do. But in that moment we kind of think, well maybe I can spin this. I can come up with an answer. I can come up with an explanation. I can find a way to, to make this make sense. So we become really good at the cover-up. We, we become very good at clearing the internet history and the browsing data and the financial reports, the empty pain pill bottles. Genesis 3, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, The Lord called to the man, Where are you? See, the truth leaked, and God said, doesn't make sense. We have a standing appointment. We're supposed to be together. This is when we walk. This is when we talk. This is when we hang out, right? Because you do realize that God wants to hang out with you. Sometimes people get hung up on doing devotions and prayer like it's some sort of thing that God mandates that people do just to be good Christians. You do understand that the whole idea of having a time of devotions and prayer is just because God wants to hang out with you. And God shows up, he's there to hang out with Adam and Eve, and what doesn't add up is that they're not there. So he asks the question, where are you? 
And Adam spins it. He says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He wasn't afraid because he was naked. He was ashamed because he was naked. He was afraid because he did the wrong thing. But he was spinning it. But that's the thing about how the truth leaks. It always leads to the next question, right? There's a question, and then there's a cover-up, and the cover-up begs a new question. And so God says, wait a minute, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Isn't it, isn't it the pits when somebody asks you a direct question about the skeleton in your closet? The man replied, no, that was the woman that you gave me. Who gave me the fruit, and yes, I ate it, right? This is spinning to the end, right? We know the end is coming, but I'm going to keep spinning it until I hit the floor, right? I may have eaten it, but let me tell you what, this marriage thing that you came up with isn't as hot as you thought it was. Because she brought me into this. You see the path of evil? Came through her, right? This is the original throwing the spouse under the bus. Here's a third thought that we think that gets us in trouble. I can't afford to tell the truth. It costs too much. Look at Genesis 3.10. He says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was, what what does he say? I was afraid. I was afraid. You know what I think? I think Adam thought that if God knew what he'd really done, there would just be a scorched mark on the earth where he used to be. I'm talking to somebody in this room who'd say, who, who, who says, you know, Jonathan, here's the thing. You don't understand. I so want to tell the, the whole truth. When, when Andrew said, I told Marissa everything, and it was the most free I had felt in a long time, you don't know how much my heart engages with that and says, I wish I could have that, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid. It'd cost me too much. I don't know what would happen. You have no idea what I would lose. The whole, my whole life could fall apart. Adam was saying to God, I was scared of what you'd do. See, here's, here's the thing. I don't think people keep secrets because they're evil, because they're rebellious, because they're stubborn, because, they're, because they don't care about the outcome of their life. It's certainly not been the case for me. You know why I think people keep secrets? I think people keep secrets because they're worried about being rejected by other people. Because there's a sense in which they think they can manage it. And because they're scared to death of what would happen if they took that public. But if those three thoughts that I just mentioned have taken root in your life, and if they're the things that keep you hiding and they're the things that keep skeletons in your closet, I really want you to listen close because I want to tell you maybe the most important message anybody could tell you at this point in your life, and that is this, you're being blackmailed. You're being blackmailed. What, what, is, what, do we, what do we mean when we say somebody's being blackmailed? We're saying that that person is making decisions that go against their better judgment and go against what they want to do in order to keep something a secret. Right? When you are being blackmailed, and this is so important, please get this, you go from a want-to life to a have-to life. If somebody has something on you, if the closet has something on you, You don't do things because you want to do them. You do things because you have to do them to keep things under wraps. Right? I mean, Adam didn't want to hide behind the trees. I mean, I don't know anybody who 
just wakes up every morning and goes, I think I'm going to go hide behind some trees for a little while. Sounds like fun to me, good pastime. Well, okay, if you're a deer hunter, I get that. But uh, other than that, I'm just going to go hide behind the trees. Not so much, right? And, and you think about the stupidity of that. I'm going to hide behind the trees that God created, that God has growing up out of this planet, but I think I'll be pretty well covered if I hide behind there. And I guarantee you, Anybody who has ever touched, handled, or dealt with fig leaves understands that Adam did not want to wear fig leaf underwear. Nobody would ever want to wear fig leaf underwear. He thought he had to. I'm talking to someone in this room who's making decisions that you don't agree with. You're doing things that are not in line with your character. And it's not because you're evil or because you're rebellious, it's because you think you have to. But the thing is, you're being blackmailed. You're not really living, you're hiding. And we get to that point where we think, I have to lie because the truth would ruin everything. I have to keep people at a distance, even the people that I love, because if they got close enough, then they, they might figure it out. I have to accept this dark part of my life because I'm not strong enough to beat it. Those feelings are real and they're natural. It's part of living in a broken world. But as long as those feelings are, are in control, you'll never be free. Let me do this. Would you let me do this? Let's switch gears for a second. I want to take you to a different story in the Bible because I think this will really help open up what it is that we're trying to say here. We're going to go to John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling. It's in early in his ministry. He's on his way to, um, uh, uh, he, he's, he's on his way making a journey to a place where he will be ministering, but he's got to go through Samaria first. And you have to understand about Samaria we really don't have time to get into this, but Samaria was, the Samaritans were people that the Jews looked down on. There, there had become a tremendous racial, there, there was a racism profile that had really developed there, and Jews thought Samaritans were kind of subhuman, and they had all kinds of names that they called them, and, and they didn't even want to be around them, and, and, and no Jewish teacher wanted to go through Samaria. They would take the long way around to get where they were going, but Jesus went straight through Samaria, and they get into the middle of town in the hot part of the day and they go and, they, and Jesus sits down at the side of a well and he's sweaty and he's hot and he's tired and there is this Samaritan woman that's also there. Now this is unusual because women did not come to the well to draw water in the middle of the day. That wouldn't have made sense. You came and you drew, drew water in the, in the evening as it began to cool down. If you came in the hot part of the day, it just made the job harder. So this lady was coming to the well at a time when nobody else would have been there. So here it is, there's this lady and there's Jesus, and they're both at the well at the same time. Now what you need to understand about this lady is that she was somebody who absolutely was living a have-to life and not a want-to life. We're going to find out in a minute that this is a woman who'd been through a lot of difficult relationships. She'd had five marriages, and five times the man that she was married to handed her a paper of divorce and said, hit the road, I don't want to be with you anymore. And now she, as best we can tell, was probably someone's mistress. She'd, had, she'd, she'd become a, a, a social joke among all the women who were there in the town. She was, this lady was the one who couldn't make it work with any man. No matter how many men she had in her life, nobody ever liked her. And, and she was the one that had become sort of like the joke about the woman who had been passed around so many times. And they had all kinds of punchlines that she, it was, it was all about making fun of her and she was tired of it. She wasn't going to show up at the well when the rest of those ladies showed up. She was going to be there all by herself. She had not just one skeleton in the closet. She had a bunch of skeletons in the closet. And at this point, her life was about damage control. She was just trying to survive. And so as she tries to draw water, Jesus speaks to her. The Bible says, 
a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. In, in, in the Greek, I read one scholar who said, this is sort of the equivalent of saying, would you do me a favor? Would you give me a drink? And that was enough to just shock her entire system. Because the thing about it was, a Jewish teacher wouldn't speak to a Samaritan for anything other than to insult them, certainly wouldn't ask a Samaritan for a favor. And beyond that, this was a very male-dominant society, and at that, at that time in the, in the Middle East, a, a man would not ask a woman for a favor in public regardless of, of what group they were from. So the idea that a Jewish, respected man, a Jewish teacher, would come to the Samaritan woman and ask for a favor, well, that was just weird. I mean, one thing she knew, she hadn't been good enough for anybody for a long time. She knew if she wasn't good enough for anybody in the city where she lived, she sure wasn't good enough for this Jewish man. So the Bible says the woman was surprised. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. She just wanted to make sure everything's clear. Why are you asking me for a drink? And this is so powerful, get this. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. What was Jesus trying to say? What was he trying to say to Adam when he came out and he said, where are you? This is so powerful. And if you're in this room, you have a skeleton in the closet, you really got to lock in right now. Really. Jesus was saying, if you knew who I was and what I wanted to do for you, you'd stop hiding. If you knew who I was and what I want to do for you, you wouldn't feel like you need to hide anymore. He said he had a gift for her. I got a gift for you. She'd been given a lot of gifts. People giving her perfume, clothes, decorations for the house. They're nice. But that... No gift that anybody had ever given her or no gift that she could imagine anybody ever giving her could change what she was struggling with on the inside and what she was having to deal with every day. She didn't dream of perfume. She didn't dream of clothes. She didn't dream of money. What she dreamed of was a second chance. The ability to go back and have a do-over. The ability to make right decisions instead of having her life characterized by wrong decisions. She wanted something that could, could change that scary, unattractive reality that she was hiding inside. But nobody was offering her that. Not yet, anyway. Look at John 4.11. She says, Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And Jesus replied, Anybody who drinks this water, and the water in the well, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, she said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to. Look at this. She says, I won't have to come here to this well again to draw water. See, she didn't understand yet what Jesus was saying, but she knew one thing. She knew that 
the drudgery of having to try to go to that well when nobody else was there and to try to hide what she was, to not live free and live out in the open and, and feel like she had a normal life where she could be around other people. She understood that. She understood that that was a have-to thing. And that is where Jesus met her in the conversation. That's why Jesus was talking to her about water because he needed her to come online with what he was saying. And so for a moment, he uses an illustration and he says, you know how every day you have to come to this well because you, when you get water, you're just buying time. You get water, and then you get thirsty again, and you have to come back. Every day, you keep having to do this. It's like buying time. He said, what, imagine what it would be like if you had an endless source of water, and you didn't have to come back here all the time. And she said, yeah, I want that. I don't want to have to come here anymore. I don't know whether she understood where Jesus was leading with this yet, but here's where Jesus was going. Jesus was trying to teach her that whatever it is that you have to hide, that's what owns you. So he was saying, you know, in a sense, this well owns you. You have to come here. You don't want to come here and draw water, but you have to come here. Because of that, this well sort of owns you. And I'm talking to somebody in this room You don't want to hide the skeleton in the closet, but you think you have to. And whatever it is that's in the closet owns you because you have to make decisions that you wouldn't make otherwise. That's what blackmail looks like. Jesus said, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them. By the way, that's where we get the name New Spring, giving them eternal life. Please listen, Jesus didn't offer this lady a second chance. He offered her a fountain of second chances. He offered her a spring of second chances that would come one after the other. He was saying, look, you don't have to keep the skeleton in the closet because, I don't, because other people may not give you a second chance, but I'm going to give you second chances that never stop. They're, your boss may not give you a second chance. Your spouse may not give you a second chance. Your family may not give you a second chance. Your friends, your neighbors, it may not give you a second chance, but this is what God is saying. In God's love, when we're willing to confront the skeleton in the closet and say the same thing that God says about this to say, this isn't even something I want. Whenever we're willing to do that, God says there is second chance after second chance. The Bible says his mercies begin anew every morning. Maybe she thought Jesus was still talking about water. I don't know. I don't know what she thought at this point. But she said, yeah, I want that. And the next thing Jesus said, John 4, she said, he said, go and get your husband. Ugh. Boy, that's when you just feel it. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. It was a surreal moment. It was like the closet was wide open with this guy. And yet he was still sitting there. He's still talking, still dialoguing. He hasn't run away. He hasn't made jokes. He hasn't laughed. He hasn't said she's a terrible person. He's just there. And here's, here's what I want you to get. Please lock in because I'm, I'm almost done here. But this is really, really important. If you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan, I want to be free. I so badly want to be free that I would go to Jesus and I would say, Jesus, please give me those second chances. Give me that endless stream of second chances. That's what I want. Here's what you have to know. The first thing Jesus will say if you go to him and you ask him that is he'll say, all right, let's go open the closet. Let's go open the closet. That's why he said, Go get your husband. 
And yet when he did, when, when the two of them looked at the ugly reality that was in her life, he proved because he was there, because he still showed that he loved her, that he could handle the unattractive, scary things that she'd been trying to hide. See, I think the main reason we hide stuff is because we know we can't handle it. I can't handle what's in my closet. You can't handle what's in yours. That's the point. Jesus wanted her to know, I can handle what's in your closet. I can handle it. Now, it's important to recognize that even though this happened, she was still scared about something. She still had one thing she was scared of. In John 4, verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Well, maybe this guy wasn't going to tear her apart for her mistakes. Maybe he was just an oddball who was willing to be gracious and loving even though all this was out in the open. But she knew someday she had to face God. And she couldn't really be free unless God said, you have a second chance. I'm talking to somebody in this room who is scared to death that God would kill you if he knew what was in your closet. Can I just tell you, God already knows what's in your closet. He's waiting for you to approach him and say, I'm ready to open up the door. She said, only God could tell me I have a second chance. And then look at this in verse 26. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. He said, if you're looking for a second chance direct from the source, if you're looking for a second chance direct from God, you got it. You got it. So what happened? What's the end of this story? Look at this, John 4, 28. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to her village, telling everyone, here is the woman who wanted to be off of everybody else's radar screen. She wanted to live incognito. She didn't want people to remember who she was. She didn't want people to interact with her. And now she is running back to her city and she is waving at everybody and yelling, hey, you gotta come meet this guy who told me everything that I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? I want to tell you something. Whenever you're ready to be real about the skeletons in your closet, God can use them to change the world. I mean, think about Andrew and Marissa telling their story, knowing as they sit across from that video camera that somewhere between six and 7,000 people would hear their story on this weekend. The bravery it, take, it would take to do that. But also, to, I know that, that not a person in this room was not personally touched by their testimony because I cannot imagine how a person could listen to that and not be touched by it. See, God can use those skeletons in the closet to change the world if we're ready to be real about it and we're ready to bring it out in the open and say, I, I, I want to be free. The truth's going to leak anyhow. Might as well just let the truth be there. I love this verse. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 23 says this, great is his faithfulness, speaking of God. His mercies begin fresh every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Look at this. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let me tell you something, because this is really, really important. Satan is very smart. He knows what he can threaten you with. Whatever your hope is in, that's what Satan will threaten you with. If your hope is in your job, Satan will tell you, you better keep that skeleton in the closet, because if you don't, you're going to lose your job. If your hope is in your family, Satan is going to say, you better keep that skeleton in the closet, because if you don't, you're going to lose your family. Whatever it is that your hope is in, 
That's what Satan will threaten you with. But there is one point where we have him stumped. And that's when we say, my hope is in the Lord. Because Satan understands he can't threaten us with that. I mean, Romans 8, 38 says this. Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us. From God's love, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not your boss, not your wife, not your kids, not your friends, not people who don't like you, not people who think you have a bad reputation now. Nobody can take away what Jesus wants to give you. Here's the thing. Your boss may think you're crazy, but God says it's going to be okay because I'm there with you and I love you and it's going to be all right with you. Or your, your spouse may think you're nuts or your spouse may be mad at you or be upset with you, but God is saying, but it's still gonna be okay because even if that person's mad at you, I still love you and it's gonna be all right. I'm just saying, God is saying, could we do this? Could we be real? Because if we could be real, you could be free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that you call us into a life of freedom and that you can take the broken pieces, the unattractive things, the scary things, and you can weave them into a tapestry of beauty that will leave an impact on generations. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.